everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Sabrina. And I'm Hans. And today we're sitting down with Professor Valerie Tiberius. Valerie Tiberius is the Paul W. Frenzel Chair in Liberal Arts and Professor of Philosophy at the University of Minnesota. Her work explores the ways in which philosophy and psychology can both contribute to the study of well-being and virtue. She's the author of The Reflective Life, Living Wisely with Our Limits, Moral Psychology, A Contemporary Introduction, and Well-Being as Value Fulfillment, How We Can Help Others to Live Well. Thank you for joining us, Professor Tiberius. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So Professor, one of the first few questions we like to ask our speakers is to share a little story or perhaps a moment in your life where you see it as an inflection point. It can be a personal or a professional trajectory, um, but still, but a pivot point, if you will. Um, do you think you have a moment to share with us? Hmm, maybe. So there are, there's more than one that comes to mind, but um, maybe one that's particularly relevant to uh, students at Claremont is uh, actually my experience in college taking my first philosophy class. Um, I had grown up, so my, my father is um, a psychologist um, who loves botany. So he was, you know, either going to be a, a tree specialist or, or a psychology professor. And he ended up being a psychology professor, but he also really loved philosophy. And we had a lot of philosophy books in my house. And I think he talked to me in a way when I was growing up, we were always having, you know, arguments and, uh, like, not fights, but arguments about, about uh, big questions and ethics. And I didn't really know that that was philosophy. So when I got to college and I took this philosophy class, I just felt like, oh my God, this is what, this is how I think, this is, this is me. Uh, and it was one of those, I did not go into college thinking I was going to major in philosophy or become a professor like my dad or anything like that. But that first class, my teacher was so wonderful. He used to stand in the hallway with us for, you know, half an hour just talking about free will or uh, mental pain and what, what that is and what it means for life. And he, it, it was a fantastic experience and it, it did motivate me to just keep taking philosophy classes and here I am. Thank you, Professor. Um, you mentioned that uh, you never really knew you were gonna go into philosophy um, before college and even, even upon entering college. Uh, I was wondering as a follow-up, um, uh, if there was anything non-academic related that kind of inspired you to pursue the field or maybe more specifically into your field of research uh, about values and well-being? Hmm. That's an interesting question. I, I don't think that I, I, I never really had being a professor as my goal until I was almost finished with my PhD. 
Um, and, you know, at some point in grad school, I sort of realized, oh, that's the path I'm on. I guess, I guess that's what I'll be doing. So I, I was always very much motivated by the questions rather than the career. Um, and I don't, I suppose one thing that perhaps a, a non-academic factor was um, growing up with type one diabetes. So I actually mentioned that in my talk. So I grew up with this chronic illness. It's pretty well maintained, but you know, I've had it for 50 years now. And when I first was diagnosed, the technology was not nearly as good as it is now. So there were a lot of, you know, threats that of early death and blindness and, and what all these terrible things. And I, I think it might have given me a, a slightly different perspective on life from kids who don't grow up with something like that. Um, I, you know, I'm not sure because I, I, it's the only life I've known. I haven't known not being diabetic, uh, but I think that might have been a factor in sort of making me wonder, like, what is life all about, and what what is the point of it? And you know, if you if you're if it's impressed upon you as a young person that life is finite. Uh, it, I think that can cause you to have some early philosophizing, if that makes sense. And to add on as a follow-up um, to your experience, um, I was wondering if, uh, if you had any ties um, or if you were inspired by um, religion or beliefs that you grew up with uh, is in your childhood uh, to kind of um, give you inspiration of um, exploring like values and well-being. Hmm. That's an interesting thing to think about because I was raised an atheist. So <laughs> I was raised, actually, I can tell you a story about that. When I, when I was a little kid, I don't know, like first grade, second grade, something like that, all my friends went to Sunday school or, um, or uh, Hebrew school, some of them, there were Jewish kids in my neighborhood. And I, I said to my dad, I wanted to go because, you know, it seemed cool, like everybody was going. Uh, so my dad said, well, okay, we don't have a church, but I can take you to a Unitarian Sunday school where they, the um, religious tenets of utilitarianism are very accepting of all religions. So I went to the Sunday school and the assignment for the day, they wanted everybody to bring a symbol from their religion. And my father gave me a pin from the American Humanist Association, which I don't actually know if it exists anymore, but the American humanists were an atheist group of kind of socially progressive uh, people. Um, and I brought that little pin and other kids, you know, some kids had a cross and some kids had the star of David and, uh, and none of us, you know, we were like six or seven years old and none of us understood what any of this meant, these symbols, we were just sort of show and tell with our little, little symbols. And, you know, I got home and my dad asked me how it was. And I said, well, you know, it's kind of just like more school. So I don't really need to go back. <laughs> um, so it, it, religion, obviously, religion per se didn't have 
a driving was not a driving force in my life but maybe there's a way in which not having a religion is motivates having some philosophical questions because there's no ideology given to you that answers those questions so um a lot of philosophical questions about the meaning of life or the meaning of death or free will um all these kinds of things those questions are answered by organized religions and it's possible that because i didn't have one those questions were more open for me in a way on that point professor you know i've grown up in a community who that largely sees philosophy and having a sense of faith as something that is contradictory um, and ten it tends to be that you know some people who are interested in philosophy have less of a strong attachment to a particular religious faith um, and on that and like with that thought you know there's also a lot some groups of people who are skeptical about philosophy and psychology as two separate fields just because it seems like you know human nature is so dynamic it's so complex like how can you really answer anything with philosophy especially that it's so open-ended um you know and similarly for psychology there's this sentiment there seems to be the sentiment at least that you can't really and you can't really structure human behavior and like human action because it's so it seems so random sometimes and it seems so abstract and there's no conclusive framework that you can say this is the reason why xyz happens and why people do things but so how would you explain the importance of this intersection um, and like the fields of work that you study to these people who may seem skeptical about accepting it, especially the fact that it's like, you know, philosophy of psychology combined together seems like it would yield quite a bit of uh, raised eyebrows, if you will. For sure. That's a great question. So first, I can't resist saying that you're absolutely right that people's reaction to philosophy is that it's an, it's um, antithetical to faith somehow. But some of the great philosophical traditions have been in churches. I mean, the Catholic Church has a long tradition of doing philosophy and producing great philosophers like St. Thomas Aquinas and and so on, and the, the Muslim religion, also great philosophical tradition, same with the Jewish tradition. So, so it, it, it does happen to be at our current moment of history that the philosophers probably tend to be, the, they certainly tend to be less religious than um, the general, than the average in the population. Um, but I don't think it's a necessary dichotomy between philosophy and faith. The, the, but the question you asked about psychology and, I mean, essentially it sounds like you're sort of asking a, a question about the reductive aspect of psychology. So psychology tends to reduce um, human beings, human nature, human behavior to a few general principles and uh, to try to explain every all the complicated things that we do and feel uh, by reference to 
you know, for neuroscientists, it's just states of the brain. Um, and for uh, other kinds of psychologists, it's, you know, social forces plus personality. So they have this reductive approach, which is, you know, I think pretty common in science. And sometimes I think philosophers, I, I think one of the things that makes combined research in philosophy and psychology difficult is that um, philosophers, some philosophers are in favor of reduction, but others think that there's something about human life that's too complicated to be reduced in that way, that there's something that that sort of um, natural reduction to something like brain states, it just leaves out something crucial about us. My, I guess my own perspective is that um, science has to be, um, it has to be possible to explain our behaviors, our actions, our, um, the way we think and feel in scientific terms, because I'm a naturalist and I think we are basically animals. <laughs> um, but at the same time, I think we're such incredibly sophisticated and complicated animals that those reductions, those scientific explanations are never going to be simple ones. So it's actually one of the things I think is beneficial about psychologists and philosophers working together is that psychologists, the scientists have that kind of constant tendency to want to reduce things and make it simpler. And philosophers can often be the ones to say, well, it's actually doesn't look like it's that simple. Uh, you're going to, you know, your, your theory has to be more complicated to take account of this aspect of, of human life. So it's something I think is nice about combining philosophy and psychology is that you have that, uh, that re reductive impulse to explain everything, just for example, by reference to states of the brain, but then you also have this, the impulse of philosophers tends to be to look at the big picture, to think of the big questions, to think about how to synthesize different areas of knowledge. And so those two, um, I think those two feel, fields and those two ways of approaching questions work nicely together. Thank you, Professor. Um, I really appreciate how you describe um, the two fields that uh, you're working in, both psychology and philosophy. And I suppose you can look more into the specifics of your work and, and possibly, um, sorry, um, could you possibly give our listeners uh, a bit of a introduction or a refreshener of uh, what your value fulfillment theory is about? Sure. And, and by the way, you could just call me Valerie. Professor seems very, very formal for this informal Zoom conversation. Um, so might help to start with just a quick outline of the three main approaches in philosophy to well-being. The first approach is hedonism. And hedonists say that the good life is the pleasant life, a life with more pleasure than pain. The second approach is an objective approach. And those folks say that 
there are some objective goods and what it what it is for you to live your own life well is to get those objective goods so those are maybe things like knowledge and pleasure and happiness or sorry not happiness but well that's complicated i'm going to start that sentence over So the second approach is this objective approach that says there are objective goods like knowledge and friendship and achievement. And then the third approach is often called desire satisfaction, but you, more broadly, it's you know any kind of view that identifies your well-being with the fulfillment of your own goals. So that's where my view fits. I think. Pleasure, pleasure is nice, but it's not the be all and end all for life. I don't think there are objective goods that are good for people. Uh, so for me, I think the place to look for the right view about well-being is going to be in that third camp, that uh, desire satisfaction camp. But I also think the desire isn't quite the right part of us, of our psychology to look at. So I think instead we should look at values, which are, they're a bit more complicated than desires because I think what it is to value something is partly to want it, to desire it, but it's also partly to have some uh, emotions or feelings about it and also to have some cognition with respect to it. So for instance, if you value um, being a, a son or daughter to your parents, you value your relationship with your parents, you want to spend time with them, you want to remember their birthday, you feel happy when they call you, you feel sad when they forget your birthday, uh, you make all sorts of judgments about, um, you know, how you have uh, reasons to plan your life to respect the value of your relationship with your parents. So you might plan to visit them at Christmas or to call them once a week or, or whatever. So for me, valuing is um, psychologically more complex than simple desiring. And then basically, I think, though there are a lot of complications, but um, different people interpret their different values in um, various ways. So values come along with an interpretation of what it means to succeed in terms of them. Like for some people, valuing your parents means that you have to financially support them. Uh, for some people, valuing your relationship with your parents might just mean um, being respectful to them and not forgetting that they exist. Uh, so how you succeed in terms of the value might be different from person to person. But what it is for you, for a single person to achieve well-being is to succeed in terms of her values over time. So as the more value fulfillment you can get in your life, the better your life goes for you. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, um, riffing off on that point, Professor, I'm, you mentioned in your talk and you also said earlier that, you know, you view humans as creatures. And more specifically, humans are fundamentally goal-seeking creatures. Um, do you think that this could also be our 
our being like humanity's um, fatal flaw in a way, because we're constantly pursuing or trying to form some sort of goal to pursue. That's an interesting question. So, so in, in some way, creature is a little bit of a term of art in philosophy. We, I don't mean anything. I don't mean to compare us to monkeys or rats or, or anything. Actually, mon monkeys are pretty cool, but uh, don't mean to compare us to, you know, cats and rats. Um, yeah, I just mean we are goal-seeking animals, essentially. So would that be our fatal flaw? I think, so I don't like to think in terms of fatal flaws. That sounds like something like an original sin doctrine that I don't, I don't subscribe to. But I guess if I, you know, if I had to say, what is the, what is, is there a tragedy of human life? It, it isn't that we're goal seekers. I think it's more something about the fact that we have such complicated and active brains that our goal-seeking energy outpaces what we can actually achieve. So we're always, you know, we we strive for something, we get it, we want something else. And then we're also so incredibly reflective that we wonder what it means. So we're, we don't just, you know, get what we want and then sit and enjoy it and go for the next thing. We ponder the meaning of getting the thing and whether we ought to want something else. And we have, so it's partly our reflective capacities that get us into so much trouble. If you think about, you know, I, I'm a dog person, I have two dogs, they are goal seeking creatures, and they have constant stream of goals. But they don't have any, they don't, I don't think they have any reflection whatsoever. They go from wanting dinner to wanting a walk to wanting a treat to wanting a nap to wanting a belly rub. They get these things and it's a stream of happiness for them. Uh, so I, yeah, so I guess I do think it's our, our reflective capacities that, that get us into trouble. Uh, but of course, it's also our reflective capacities that make us who we are. And moving on, uh, I guess it's not really a conversation right now. If uh, At this time, if we don't really bring the pandemic into the question. Um, so my next question for you is... Um, Professor, um, when you, uh, I guess in your research and your papers, you talk about friendships and you mentioned it, the importance of understanding the values that are important to others um, or your friends. Uh, my question is, um, given that people's values may have changed due to the pandemic, um, navigating through relationships might become difficult. And I was wondering if you could give any insight on this. Oh, interesting. Do you have an example of what you're thinking about? Um, I think uh, the scenario I'm kind of picturing is, um, I guess, because of pandemic, people probably value or prioritize um, different things more. Maybe 
uh, kind of a shift from like, uh, I guess um, some people might shift towards prior prioritizing their family more and kind of how perhaps because of that, um, they might seem like maybe different people um, and with that relationships are likely to change. Interesting, yeah. One, one thing I've heard actually is that um, the pandemic is making a lot of people focus on a smaller set of friends rather than all the sort of second tier friends that, <laughs> that we tend to have. So you could imagine a couple of things happening. One thing that might be happening is that right now, because socializing with people is so anxiety producing, we are restricting our social circles so that, you know, the people that I have seen in person, just, I, I visited my father and my father-in-law because they're both 80 something years old and that seemed important. And then my very, very closest inner circle of friends who we all talk about, you know, well, are you vaccinated and who have you seen and what store did you go to? And are you are always wearing a mask? There's, there's so much conversation before you can see a live person. So one thing that could be happening is that that's just temporary. And as soon as socializing becomes easy again, our social networks will expand and we'll go back to valuing the kinds of relationships that we did previously. Or, and I think this is what's motivating your question, maybe we've all had this moment of realizing, oh my God, you know, I do all these things in my life and spend all this time with people. I don't even like them very much. And I, I'm actually happier just spending all my energy uh, developing these closest relationships, the ones that have been um, central during the pandemic. And if that's what happens, I, I would predict that there's going to be a kind of period of adjustment while where people have to get their expectations in line with each other. Um, and, you know, some of us might have to try to be understanding about our friends who have decided to prioritize their families and who who have who just don't have time for um, right now, maybe for people who they aren't as close to as, um, as, as they are to their family members or their, you know, inner, inner circle of friends. Yeah, I don't, so I don't have a, a sort of um, blanket answer to that question. I think it'll depend a lot on exactly who, what the change is and whether it's permanent or a temporary fix, but it's a really interesting thing to think about. So before we end off, Professor, we wanted to ask if you could recommend one book to for all our listeners to list, to read. Maybe it's a book that influenced your trajectory or something that you just like purely for fun, um, for entertainment and leisure, you like to, to indulge yourself in. What book would that be? Oh my God, I really wish that I'd known about this question in advance. <laughs> One book. Mm -hmm. Your favorite child. Your favorite dog. <laughs> Just give me a second here. Because I'm, of course, 
you know, I'm, I'm of course thinking about all the books I read most recently, but that's not really fair. I did, so there was a book called, Also, I shouldn't get it wrong because then people will get a recommendation for a book that doesn't exist. Um, so I listen to a lot of books on Audible and one that I listened to fairly recently was The Secret of Our Success by Joseph Henrik. I want to fact check that one, but I'm pretty sure I got the title and author right. And it's essentially about um, why the human species has been so successful evolutionarily. And um, his hy hypothesis that he argues for in that in that book is that it doesn't really, it's not actually to do with our intelligence but more to do with our social capacities. And that I thought that was a really fascinating um, perspective to have. Uh, so that's, that's definitely one book that I would recommend. <laughs> but I hate picking one. <laughs> it's like asking to choose your favorite, you know, like your favorite child, that tense, your favorite dog. <laughs> Unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today. Thank you, Professor Tiberius, for joining us. And to all our listeners, remember to stay hungry. Thanks a lot.